I'm Lauren Sherman, the writer behind Puck's fashion and beauty memo line sheet. And I'd like to welcome you to my new show, Fashion People. On every episode of Fashion People, I'll be talking to insiders about the stuff we're all whispering between the press releases. From M&A rumors to celebrity stylist dish to the future of legacy media. Be sure to follow and listen to Fashion People, a presentation of Odyssey in partnership with Puck. Available on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. C-13 Originals. If you have any tips as it pertains to this story, please reach out to tips at gangstercapitalism.com or our tip line 347-674-6980. We can ensure anonymity. Let me tell you about someone named Marion Hammer. This is journalist Mike Spees. Spees covered the NRA for four years for the Trace the New Yorker, and ProPublica. And for one of those years, he covered a legendary 81-year-old Florida gun lobbyist named Marion Hammer. She's tiny. She favors blue and pink blazers, wears deep red lipstick, has a bowl haircut. She carries a handgun in her purse. For a long time, it was a laser-guided Smith & Wesson. And she is by far and away the NRA's most prominent and crucial and important lobbyist. She's a longtime Wayne LaPierre loyalist. They've worked hand-in-glove together. She has routinely protected him over the years. In addition to being a gun lobbyist, Marion Hammer is also a prominent board member of the NRA and was its first female president. She is operated with complete autonomy and is not accountable to anyone. She is famous for her sharp tongue and what could be characterized as mean-spiritedness. She is incredibly and notoriously vindictive. The stakes are never too low for her. How do you tell a 10-year-old little girl who got a Ruger 1022 with a pink stock for her birthday that her rifle is an assault weapon and she has to turn it over to government or be arrested for felony possession? There's no conflict in which she's not willing to create or insert herself in, or more importantly, if she feels like she's exacting retribution on you. That's usually what it's about. Everything for her is personal. You can point to 10 million examples of that, but one of the best ones has nothing really to do with guns at all. In 1999, a bill was proposed in Florida, which if passed, would replace the official state bird, the mockingbird, with a different species called the scrub jay. Clay Henderson was the president of the Florida Audubon Society in the late 90s. And he knows this story well. I heard about this initiative to designate the scrub jay as Florida state bird from Howard Futch. Howard Futch was a state representative from Brevard County over by Cape Canaveral. Howard was not a bunny hugger. 
Howard was a true blue conservative Republican. In fact, he had been chairman of the Republican Party of Brevard County before his election to legislature. Howard called to tell me that school children in his county had sent him a petition signed by thousands of them asking for him to introduce a bill to name the scrub jay as the state bird. And he wanted to know if uh, the Audubon Society would support that. And I said, well, of course, we'll enthusiastically support that. Howard said that he was really excited about the students getting involved in the process and that he was going to hope that this would be a learning experience for them and that they would be able to follow the course of the bill as it moved through the legislature. This was just really good for these kids. And that resulted in about 10,000 schoolchildren signing petitions that were sent to the legislature supporting this bill. And of course, from our perspective, Audubon Society, that was good because part of this is raising awareness about the plight of this very special bird. The scrub jay, as we say, is Florida's only indigenous bird. In other words, it's the only bird that only lives in Florida. What's really interesting about them is that they will, if you put your hand out with a peanut, they'll come and rest in your hand and take that peanut from you. There could not be a more docile or friendly bird than the scrub jay. The bill had a lot of support. When it was filed, it received uh, press attention. The school kids getting behind it added to it. Nobody was against scrub jays. The bill was expected to breeze through. Then, Marion Hammer showed up. When she walked into the committee meeting that day, it took everybody by surprise. Hammer began berating the scrub jay in no uncertain terms. She basically made fun of it. She compared the scrub jay to a begging bird. If we made this the state bird, it would be endorsing the welfare state. She just came in and belittled the whole thing. But she also used the conservative touchstones to get her point across. In defending her position, Hammer said of the scrub jay, quote, they eat the eggs of other birds. That's robbery and murder. I don't even think they can sing. She also added, quote, begging for food isn't sweet. It's lazy and it's a welfare mentality. It was an ambush. She chose to appear and make her stand and make sure the bill got killed. And that's what she did. She killed it. She came in there and took a shot at the scrub jay because she could. This was just Marion Hammer throwing her weight around. I don't think she cared anything about scrub jays. But Clay Henderson has a pretty good idea about what really motivated Marion Hammer to show up at the meeting that day. I've always thought that her interest in killing the bill was that she was upset with me and the Audubon Society. 
the year before I had served on the Constitution Revision Commission. And by a very close vote, including mine, we had put onto the ballot a constitutional provision to require a three-day waiting period for the purchase of handguns. It was approved. So I always thought this was about her trying to get back at us for our involvement in that issue. The lawmakers decide to vote down the motion to make the state bird the scrub jay. And by the way, that situation has played out a bunch more times. And every time the bird has come up, she has then also showed up to the legislature to denounce it on the floor. So the scrub jay, scrub jay has been a very maligned creature. Marion Hammer's hatred for the scrub jay is matched by her fondness for Wayne LaPierre. She's been a strident supporter of Wayne's for decades. But according to tax records, that support has been rewarded handsomely by the NRA. And Hammer is just one of almost a quarter of the board members receiving money directly from the NRA. Why is this significant, you might ask? For one, payment to board members of nonprofit organizations like the NRA raises serious conflict of interest questions. But second, board members vote on NRA business. Business like approving financial transactions, electing new board members, and keeping Wayne LaPierre in power for almost 30 years. And they say, so you want to donate $1,000? I said, no, several million. When any organization drifts in the wrong direction, it's the duty of its members to write it. A happy board member will not be too rigorous about killing the golden goose. I'm Andrew Jenks. This is Gangster Capitalism, season two, the NRA. Calling all pop culture enthusiasts. Are you obsessed with all things celebrity? Do you live for the drama, the laughs, and the unexpected moments that unfold on social media? Then you're going to want to tune in to the Comments by Celebs podcast. Join us three times a week as we deep dive into every aspect of pop culture. Whether it's dissecting the latest trends or just chatting about your favorite celebs, Comments by Celebs has you covered. We have new episodes out every week. Follow and listen to Comments by Celebs on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Calling all pop culture enthusiasts. Are you obsessed with all things celebrity? Do you live for the drama, the laughs, and the unexpected moments that unfold on social media? 
then you're going to want to tune in to the Comments by Celebs podcast. I'm Emma. I'm Julie. And I'm Isabel. Together, we run Comments by Celebs on Instagram and host the Comments by Celebs podcast. Join us three times a week as we deep dive into every aspect of pop culture. Whether it's creating hypothetical scenarios, dissecting the latest trends, or just chatting about your favorite celebs, Comments by Celebs has you covered. We start the week with a full-blown pop culture breakdown, analyzing all of the biggest headlines. Next, we discuss all things Kardashians. Recapping current episodes or taking a trip down memory lane to relive some of their iconic moments from the past. And for our final episode of the week, we serve you a full Bravo breakdown. From recaps of Housewives, Vanderpump Rules, Summer House, and more, if it's going on in the Bravo world, we've got it covered. We have new episodes out every week. Follow and listen to Comments by Celebs on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. The life blood of this organization is on the line. We are under attack from without. We do not need to be under attack from within. That's Marion Hammer, at 80 years old, addressing the membership last April at the annual convention in Indianapolis. You may remember that from episode two. Hammer is speaking out against allowing the whole membership to vote on a resolution to depose Wayne LaPierre and members of the board like herself. She's been a board member for almost 40 years and a major Wayne supporter during her tenure. But what can't be ignored are the ways in which Marion Hammer has been supported by the NRA. In addition to her role on the NRA Board of Directors, Hammer is also the sole paid employee of her nonprofit called Unified Sportsmen of Florida, which is an NRA gun rights affiliate. Marion collects an annual salary from both the NRA and from USF, which combined has totaled at least $3.4 million between 2004 and 2018. This is a major red flag by itself, but what has drawn recent scrutiny is that Hammer has issued herself two stunningly low-interest loans from USF, despite the fact that her nonprofit was operating at a deficit. Hammer claims that the loans came from her personal retirement account, but when asked about this for a news story, she declined to produce documents supporting her claim. These loans totaled more than $250,000 and were used to purchase property, including homes for her daughter and granddaughter. Florida law prohibits nonprofits from issuing loans for personal use. The purpose of a board member is often to become a major contributor to the organization but also people that have a special expertise. They are fiduciaries for the organization. The thought of self should be renounced. And that means that they shouldn't be lining their own pockets at the expense of the organization. This is Jim Fishman, a professor of nonprofit law at Pace University in New York. 
and the co-author of New York Nonprofit Law and Practice. Generally, with a board member, you are expected to give or get. And what that means is the organization may have a minimum limit that a board member is expected to contribute to the organization. And the board member can write their own check, or if they have wealthy friends, can raise that amount through the get. The NRA is one of the few boards that I've heard of where directors are not expected to support the organization financially. It's one of the rare cases where there's no giving, but it's the board member that's getting. I've really chosen the wrong boards over the years. I mean, I've never heard of this before. As it turns out, Marion Hammer is just one example of an NRA board member receiving money directly from the organization. Reports show that no less than 18 members of the board have received money for things like writing in NRA publications, consulting, membership commissions, a used truck, antique guns, and autographed guitars. It seems that most of these payments to the board members were approved by the board members after they were already paid. One quarter of the board members have received consulting agreements, various kinds of benefits ranging from tens of thousands of dollars to up to $3 million. This is just incredible. The reason for it, I imagine, is that a happy board member will be not too rigorous against Mr. LaPierre. Will they be influenced about killing the golden goose? When hearing about the way Wayne LaPierre and his allies on the board have personally benefited from membership money, it's easy to forget about the people who actually give the NRA its power and money, the actual members, the small donors, and the grassroots fundraisers. These are the people shoveling coal into the engine while trusting those on deck to avoid the icebergs. Fortunately, we received a tip from one of those grassroots fundraisers, a Wisconsin man named Scott Tache who, after volunteering to raise money for the NRA for over a decade, was offered a full-time position at the organization back in 2004. When they offered the job, I knew I was going to take a substantial cut in pay, actually about two-thirds cut in pay than I was used to. But my father had always said that they've never made hearses with luggage racks, and since we were pretty much debt-free, my heart was in this. And we accepted the position and went on from there. Scott had owned his own business, earning $130,000 a year. And now he was making $45,000 a year. But Scott didn't take the position for the pay. His job was to solicit donations in his home state of Wisconsin for the NRA Foundation, the organization's charitable arm. And Scott would stress to donors, some giving just $10 and $20, 
that their money was going directly towards state and national programs, not toward paying staff like him. Everything was transparent. That was probably one of the primary sales pitches that field reps and volunteers would stress when out soliciting for funds, donations, was that there were no paid employees. There was some overhead, such as shipping costs for materials, things like that, but no employees were on the books of the NRA Foundation. And of course, those donations to the foundation are tax deductible because they go directly towards education programs for the NRA not lobbying or political advocacy. It would have to be used only for public benefit programs. 50% of all the funds raised in each state would be earmarked that it could, would only be spent within that state. The other 50% was to support national public benefit programs. I actually would manage the numbers and that all of the revenue would go to headquarters, the NRA Foundation. And then at the end of the year, headquarters would send me a report saying, you know, here's the total money that you raised, divide that by two, here's the amount that will be available for the Wisconsin Annual State Fund Committee meeting. The system worked flawlessly, in my opinion. Then, right around the time that the NRA began to have serious financial difficulties, Scott noticed that things weren't working so flawlessly anymore. In 2017, what I personally started noticing was headquarters questioning a lot of the state grants, having more discretion on what they would decide to fund or not, when prior to that, that was always the decision of each specific state fund committee, so long as it was legal and ethical and it fit the NRA Foundation's mission statement. And suddenly they're micromanaging, you know, well, we could do something better with the money. And I got kind of short with it because it was like, well, it's not your money. It's for the state of Wisconsin, so this is what the volunteers and the people active on the ground feel that it would be best used for. In the past, they always would give the state fund committee the following year a report where that money went. Suddenly in 2017, I'm not getting that report, and when I inquire why, the answer was, well, that's on a need to know. Being the state secretary for the NRA Foundation in Wisconsin, I definitely was in a need to know to follow the money. In 2018, they flat out just said, no, we're not giving you those numbers. That was just unheard of. When they stopped giving us answers, and here we are out in the field and we're asking for the answers so that we can explain it to donors and volunteers, which are the two key groups of people that make this all happen. And if they have questions, the worst thing that you can do is not give them an answer because the source will suddenly dry up real quick. The first thing that I thought of is this is something that should be investigated. 
because it's tax-free money that, by law, can only be used for public benefit. But according to Scott, in June of 2019, he and a room full of field reps were finally told where some of that money was going. Well, we were told that now our income, the overhead, the vehicles that we drive, everything, all the expenses that are generated by field representatives out in the field, were going to now be paid out of funds that were raised by the NRA Foundation. So essentially, the donations that Scott was soliciting would pay his salary. And the pitch that he and others like him had been making for so long that all of the money was going toward public programs was now a lie. Most of the field reps in the room, at the time I think there was 51, we were pretty adamant about, wait a minute, this here took us not only by surprise, but how are we to explain this to not only the volunteers, but donors that we've been saying for 27 years that this is one of the key things. If you donate a dollar to the NRA Foundation, 99% of that is going to go to a cause that there's nobody making, you know, there's no personal gain or that in between. And that was now all out the window. And that's where a lot of flags start coming up. Our biggest concern, the field rep's concern at the time, was how do we explain this now to the donor and the volunteers, which we've been saying just the opposite for 27 years? And when I demanded that answer, all I got was, well, don't say anything. I was not going to lie to them and uh, to not tell them the whole truth about changes would be the same as lying to them. So I had to put in my resignation along with many other field reps. Finding out that the tax-free donations he'd solicited were now paying his salary, Scott had had enough. After 16 years as a full-time employee and another 12 on top of that as a volunteer, he quit his job at the NRA. Here, Scott reads a portion of a speech he made at a banquet, addressing his resignation. I've always said that one cannot fix anything from the outside looking in. That said, change is inevitable, and we all must always adapt in order to improve. But when any organization drifts in the wrong direction, it's the duty of its members to right it. And the best place to start is to remind the few in management positions that they in fact work for and answer to five and a half million members and not the other way around. In all corporations that I know of which have a board of directors, the board oversees and controls all operations and the duties of the officers and chief executive officer. With the NRA, it appears that the chief executive officer and a handful of select officers oversees and controls the board of directors, all with little to no accountability for their actions. Thank you. 
The Wayne LaPierre camp might not be losing any sleep over the resignation of people like Scott Tache. After all, he was just out there collecting donations. But some members who give donations are disenchanted too. Chief among them is David DeLacula. David joined the NRA 20 years ago with a lifetime membership. And over time, he and his wife Marita increased their donations. Then they decided to do what many others have done, put the NRA into their will. So I called them and said, hey, we want to set up an estate plan. And they say, so you want to donate $1,000? I said, no, my estate's worth several million. The Delaculas pledged $10 million to the NRA. But over the span of a year, they became so upset with all of the news about membership money going to Wayne LaPierre and members of the board that they decided to spearhead a movement to withhold substantial gifts like theirs until there's a major shakeup. Here's Marita Delacula. I received a list of donors that included all of the donors that have left NRA in their estate planning. So I had reached out to many, if not all of them, and asked them if they felt the same way that we did, that all this greed and self-dealing and unbelievable spending on luxurious items was not what we had planned should happen with our money and that we were going to change our will and withhold any and all future donations to the NRA. So I reached out to them and I said, would you like to join our movement? Others did join, quite a few, and it's added up to over $165 million in withheld donations. But the Delaculas didn't stop there. They also filed a class action lawsuit against Wayne LaPierre and the NRA for fraud. The lawsuit claims that Wayne and the NRA used donations that were earmarked for things like hunting and marksmanship programs, and instead used that money for things like luxury suits, private jet travel, and payments to board members. When I saw what Wayne's doing with these monies, it just disgusts me. I just shake my head. I told him in my letter to the board, that train's left the station. I'm not going to discuss whether it's true or not, because at this point, it's irrelevant. I mean, we're past that. In addition to coordinating the withholding of $165 million from the NRA, the Delaculas also started HelpSaveTheNRA.com. The banner at the top of the homepage says, Retire LaPierre. And they've handed out failing grades to board members who support the current LaPierre regime. These are the same type of grades that the NRA gives to politicians according to how they align with the NRA. 
But to the Delaculas, it's nothing personal. I'm not pro-Wayne. I'm not anti-Wayne. I'm this objective Wayne. And he's been gracious to me. He and his wife have been gracious to my wife and I. It's just that enough's enough. There's not going to be any money into, as, as my website stated, Wayne and the management teams removed and the board is restructured. No, they're not going to get a dime. The sooner I get this thing done, the sooner I go back to retirement because I'm done. I'm going to get back to hunting, fishing. So it has nothing personal at all. The problems are adding up for Wayne LaPierre and his inner circle. With donors like David Delacula jumping ship, a huge amount of revenue for the NRA is drying up. On top of that, internal conflicts have turned into incredibly expensive legal battles. But perhaps the greatest danger to the NRA is external. There are several open investigations into the tax-exempt status of the NRA, which threatened to significantly alter the NRA's ability to operate. So where does that leave the board of directors? Nonprofit attorney and author Jim Fishman has some advice. I would want to listen to what kind of liability I would have as a board member if I was engaged in interested transactions. And what do I have to do if this goes forward. And then I'd probably resign from the board. In fact, I would probably resign right away. New York is one of the few states in the United States that has an active attorney general's charities bureau. And so the NRA has the bad luck to be in a state where there is enforcement. Now, under New York law, Conflicts of interest are not against the law. But what New York does is require very close scrutiny of those kinds of transactions. None of that was done with the NRA until there began to be conflicts, lawsuits, criticism. Then what they tried to do was to ratify these transactions. In the case of the NRA, once the uh, hounds were let out of their cages after the organization's attorney decided that they should ratify all of these transactions over the past several years, I don't think that's going to pass the smell test. It's clearly just an attempt to procedurally do what they had failed to do. In a Wall Street Journal article about the retroactive approval of some of these payments to board members, attorney Bill Brewer said, quote, the NRA is committed to good governance. He added, any such arrangements are, quote, meant to maximize the effective use of association resources and to further the organization's mission. But the attorney general of New York will announce the findings of her investigation soon. And the results could be devastating. The attorney general can go to court to restructure the organization, restructure its board, 
to oust management, to recoup management funds that were misspent, and pressure the organization to dissolve. What the NRA has to do is to show that all of these transactions were fair, reasonable, and in the corporation's best interests. That is a very, very steep mountain to climb. I don't see how they can possibly do that. My guess, and my guess is as good as anybody else's, is that LaPierre will be thrown under the bus. I think when the Attorney General's report comes out, LaPierre will be chopped liver. Of course, there are those board members who will likely go down with the ship. Here's an excerpt from an email written by a former president, longtime board member, and hater of the Florida Scrub Jay. Let's face it, the finances, the membership numbers, and all our accomplishments, along with the respect and love our members have for him, are a clear indication that Wayne was the right person for the job. Every job he has held at NRA. You should recognize that no one, no one, has accomplished as much for the NRA as Wayne LaPierre. He has earned our respect, our loyalty, and our support. Signed, NRA Past President Marion Hammer. It makes sense here to give Scott Tache the last word. I'll just be frank that it really pisses me off when people think, you know, geez, you're, you're bad-mouthing the NRA or it's people like you that are damaging the NRA. And that really gets me mad because I've dedicated my life to the National Rifle Association. And to see what we've worked for, to just have it brought down simply because of greed, it's really disgraceful. The bottom line is, you know, my wife and I and many dedicated our lives to the National Rifle Association as the oldest civil rights organization in the world. I'm speaking up because I believe in the NRA and we have to get rid of those that are actually doing harm for their own personal gain. I gained nothing. I actually lost a lot. Voluntarily, you know, nobody owes me anything. I, I took that upon myself. But one of the mortal sins that I see here of top people is simply outright greed is what it all comes down to. And it's just disgraceful. Next time on Gangster Capitalism, it seems as though all of the turmoil inside the National Rifle Association has finally caught up to the nation's most powerful special interest group. But let me tell you where we are right now. The cost that we bore was probably about a $100 million hit in lost revenue. It's been about a $100 million hit in real money. I mean, that's huge. 
So what does that mean for the future of Wayne LaPierre and the organization that he has controlled for so many years? What the story does is it tells you in dollar terms from Wayne LaPierre's own mouth how much this has cost the organization. We could see a collapse of this group in a matter of months. This could really be a nail in the coffin here. If you have any tips you'd like to share, please reach out to us at tips at gangstercapitalism.com or you can leave a voicemail at 347-674-6980. For more information, go to gangstercapitalism.com and follow us on Instagram at gangstercapitalism or on Twitter at gangstercapital. This has been a creation and presentation of C13 Originals, a division of Cadence 13. Executive produced by Chris Corcoran, Zach Levitt, and me, Andrew Jenks. Written and directed by Zach Levitt and me. Produced by Lloyd Lockridge and Perry Crowell. Edited by Perry Crowell. Mixing and mastering by Bill Schultz. Research and production support by Ian Mont. Production management by Terrence Malingone. Studio coordination by Sean Cherry. Artwork and design by Kirk Courtney. And marketing and PR by Josephina Francis and Hilary Schuff. Our original score is by Joel Goodman, and our theme song, Your Sins Will Find You Out, is by Eli Paperboy Reed. I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say, who the heck is that? Our podcast, Who Weekly, is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large. For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote. Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. The fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company. And why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts.